In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, even though we can't lift our voices in song, we lift our voices in worship, Lord, and, and we declare with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength that we love you, and we want you so much, Lord, in our life. Lord, all of us are here because we want to hear you, we want to see you, we want to touch you, or more importantly, Lord, we want you to touch us in some way, shape, or form. So please, Lord, accept all of our prayers and, and be with us here at this time in a mighty way and in a real way that we really feel your presence here, that no one leaves here and isn't able to say, like, I met the Lord this day and my, my eyes saw the Lord this day. We pray this in the name of your only begotten Son, our Lord and our God and our Savior and our King Jesus Christ, and with the intercessions and prayers of all your saints. Amen. <clears throat> all right, well, welcome, as I said before, to a little thing that we like to call The Well. And the reason why we call this meeting The Well is because this is an ordinary place where we are hoping and praying that extraordinary things happen. And the model that we have, our church started, the first Sunday that we were here was the Sunday of the Samaritan woman. And when we read that gospel together, we saw that there was a well where Jesus met a normal lady who was just going to the well like a normal person. She met Jesus there, her life was changed forever. And that's what we hope and pray happens every Sunday here. That's the picture of our church. A normal place where extraordinary things happen because of the real presence of God with us. We're currently in the third week of a series that we started called We Are STSA. And what we're doing, for those who are just joining us here, is we're talking about our core values as a church. One of the things that I said from the start, and I'll say it every week, and I said it earlier, and I'll say it every single week, is that we are not a normal church. And we are not normal people. All right? We, in a good way, like in, in, a, in a good way, we're not normal. Let's say we're not ordinary. God is calling us to be extraordinary and to do extraordinary things. So one of the things being part of this church is we're not just going through the motions. And we're not just going to come and just attend and leave and live the same life as we lived before. We believe God wants us to do great things. So in order to do great things, we have to be great people. Or more importantly, we have to be a great church together. So we're talking about our 10 core values. And if you didn't pick up the handout of our core values in the back, they're on a sheet, okay? And you can take it and put it up on your fridge. And I hope all the people who have taken it and have put it up on their fridge is on my fridge. And I look at it every time I get a little snack from the fridge. And I hope you do the same because that is who we are. Someone remind me, our first core value at, at, at St. Tim's is what? Limitless acceptance. We talked about that three weeks ago. We talked about how we believe that every person who enters our church is the most important person in the world. That person is sent by God and should be loved and accepted as such. Is that we don't believe that anyone comes here randomly. We believe that God accepts everyone limitlessly. And since we are his body on earth, we are called to do the same thing. And if someone walks through those doors, God is sending that person through those doors and we are to accept them the way Christ would have accepted them. The second core value, which we talked about last week, is... Ooh, that was not good. The second core value is? Authentic. authentic community. All right. We believe that God created the church to fulfill our relational needs in addition to our spiritual needs. We reject superficiality in relationships with one another just as we reject superficiality in our relationship with God. We believe that God made the church not just so that we can pray and not just so that we can take communion, but so that we could be like a community. We could be like a family together to fulfill our relational needs as well as our spiritual needs. And when both of them are working together, that's when the church is at its optimal. 
We don't want to be superficial in this relationship and we do not want to be superficial in this relationship. We don't want to just say hi and bye and know nothing about each other. We want to live in real community with one another. We talked about last week is about how our quality of life is determined ultimately by our relationships. And that's what adds to having like a better life. So we don't want to talk about doing more in life. We want to talk about getting more out of our lives. And we do that through relationships. One thing I talked about last week, which I know a lot of people are really excited and I saw a lot of emails flying back and forth, is the idea of these life and leisure groups. All right, so if you were here last week, I introduced the concept of a life and leisure group. And I said specifically, we're going to focus on the leisure groups right now. And in order for us to have deep relationships with one another, we have to spend time with one another. So we talked about different ways and different things that we can do together as a community and the leisure groups. And a lot of people are excited. I'll give you guys an update on those at the very end, but I don't want to get off topic. So our first core value is what? Limitless, Limitless acceptance. Our second core value is? Our third core value, if you have the first and the second, the third one is so critical because if we don't have this third one that I'm talking about right now, if we have, we accept one another and we have community with one another, but we don't have this next one, then we're not really going to be a church. Our third core value here at St. Tim's and St. Athanasius Church is transformational communal worship. We gather to be transformed by the real presence of God in our midst every time we meet. Liturgical worship, I'm sorry, liturgical prayer is not just a routine. It is life-giving and real. It is the center of our life as a family. If we have great community and great acceptance, but we don't have transformational communal worship, we are a country club. We are a social club, and we don't want to be a social club. We do want to be community, and we do want to hang out, and we do want to play baseball, and we do want to do all that kind of stuff together. But ultimately, the center of our life together is around the table of the Lord, around which we gather every Sunday. That's the center, that's the beginning, and that's the end of our relationship. That's the alpha and the omega. And everything that we do is centered around that. <clears throat> this one is very, very, very important to me. And this is one of the core values. They're all, they're all of equal importance. But this is one that we've made, I hope, a lot of, we put a lot of effort in to start, that you would start feeling this from day one. And a lot of people from the first liturgy that we had said that the liturgy was unique because one of the things, as these wonderful group of deacons over here spent a lot of time from way before we launched this church, way before, two months, three months, even before, these guys were working on perfecting the hymns in English. Hymns that you never even heard in English, and I give them a lot of credit. When no one was, knew nothing and no one was excited, these guys were working, and some from New York and some from here, and they were, they were working really hard and meeting on Skype and all that kind of stuff. And I think it made a difference. Because some people said, you know what, I heard these hymns. Even I said it. That I heard this hymn, I said this hymn a thousand times, and I never really understood what it meant. That's the point of transformational communal worship. Is that we don't just gather together to recite words, that we gather together to be transformed by the presence of God. If God is here in this room, and God is in this room, and all of us believe when we gather around this table that Christ is there, real, physical, right there. If He is there, there has to be an effect. It has to be a transformation. Imagine that this room, okay, like the sun, okay, the sun, S-U-N, sun, is in this room, somehow, imagine that. The sun, here it is, and you came in this room, and you hung out for 15, 20 minutes with the sun, and then you walked back out. Would that have an effect on your life? 
Yeah. You'd be hot, okay? You'd be tan, you'd be sweaty, you'd be smelly. Like you'd have people be like, what happened to you today? You'd be like, oh, I was hanging out with the sun. You know what I mean? Like I was in the same room as the sun. Well, what has more power, the sun or the sun? If we are going to spend an hour, I mean, it should be more closer to two hours, but you know, I know the motorcycle people affected some people today, all right? If we're going to spend an hour or two hours or however many hours that we are going to spend in the presence of the Son of God, it has to be a change. It has to be some kind of transformation. And that's one of the reasons why, like I said, we called this place the well. Because the Samaritan woman went to the well and her life was never the same ever again. And our lives need to be the same as well. With that said, that doesn't mean that every week we have a major repentance like we were doing drugs and then we stopped doing drugs after every Sunday, okay? Because we don't want to go back and doing drugs every, every week. But what I'm saying is we come and God changes. Maybe today God changed a piece of my thinking and God enlightened me and God revealed this to me. Or maybe God just hugged me today. Or maybe God disciplined me today and God spoke to me. That's what I'm saying is our lives need to be different somehow based on the presence of God here. So what I want to talk about today is our communal worship in the liturgy. I say liturgy. I'm sure you've all, not you've all, but most of you probably have heard a sermon or two about the liturgy before. What's the most common expression, or not expression, like what's the most common thing that people say about the liturgy? The liturgy is... What? I heard a lot of different things. What? Long? <laughs> no, I'm talking about what you would hear in a sermon, not what you would hear on the water cooler. <laughs> uh, it all comes out. I told you we're informal around here. It all comes out. Don't worry. The liturgy is what? Like if I'm giving a sermon, or I'm going to write a book, or I'm going to say something. The liturgy is, I wouldn't start by saying it's long. Okay? I would say the liturgy is what? Heaven on earth. Now, raise your hand if you heard someone say, liturgy is heaven on earth. Okay? Heaven on earth. We've all heard of heaven on earth. And I, at the beginning of my priesthood, you tell this to people. There's people who aren't part of the church. No, no, no. Tell the liturgy, it's heaven on earth. And then they would come and be like, why does heaven have so many kids running back and forth? Why does the sound system not work in heaven? Okay? Why are the deacons all on different pages in heaven? And you tell people, it's heaven, it's heaven, it's heaven, it's heaven. You're painting a bad picture of heaven. Because I, while I agree that the liturgy is heaven on earth in theory, in practice, it's usually not heaven on earth. Okay? Sometimes it's too hot. Sometimes it's too cold. Sometimes the tall guys are in the front and we can't see the thing. Like, there's, there's little things that make the liturgy, or it might be slightly on the not brief side. Okay? Is it heaven on earth? Or is it long? <laughs> <laughs> Which one is it? Is it heaven on earth? Or is it routine? Something I don't understand. Something just for show. Do I have to stand this much in heaven? Do I get to sit down? Often what we say about the liturgy doesn't match what we experience. And for most people, this is what I discovered. Most people who even say liturgy is heaven on earth are just going based on hearsay. Are just going based on, well, that's what I read about it, so I should just say it. And it's the right thing to say, so I'll just tell people. But I'm worried that for most people, the liturgy is more of like a closed book. 
like this thing that's like over here and like these certain people like say something about it and it's great but like the rest of us are just like watching a movie that we don't really understand but there's like five or six people that somehow really get into it and they're the ones who make it long for the rest of us and and they're really getting into it but like the rest of us that's what in my experience says that's what the liturgy has become and that ain't right that isn't right we need to change that our goal in attending the liturgy is not just to come because it's the right thing to do or because our mom is going to ask us did we go on sunday or because i got nothing better to do on a sunday morning our goal in coming to the liturgy is to meet with God. Here's the most important point I want to say about today, about the liturgy and about meeting with God in the liturgy. If you have not found the ability to meet with God in the liturgy, if for you the liturgy is boring, long, painful, whatever it is, whose fault is it? You may want to write this down if you want. I don't care if you write it down, but you have to say it inside your head. If I'm not benefiting from the divine liturgy, it's my fault. Like you say it about you and I say it about me. It's my fault. It's not the fault of the priest who's got a bad voice, plus a cold on top of the bad voice. It's not the problem of the motorcycle people who made me late. It's not the fault of the tall guy in the front who won't just sit over there so I can see the screen. It's not the fault of the deacons. It's not the fault of, of, it's not anyone's fault. It is my fault. I tell this to people sometimes, it's your fault. And people get, take this in a discouraging way. I actually take this in a very encouraging way. You know why? Why is this an encouraging statement? If I say, you not benefiting from the liturgy. Liturgy is heaven on earth. You find it down here. But I say, no, 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 I have good news for you. It's your fault. Why is that good news? Because you can fix it. Because the same person who says this sentence, if I'm not benefiting, it's my fault, I want them to say this sentence. If the problem is with me, then the solution is with me too. If the problem is that guy, I can't change that guy. If the problem is that priest, I can't change that priest. If the problem is those deacons, I can't change those deacons. Is the problem with the kids running? I'm never going to stop the kids from running. If the problem is anywhere outside of me, I can't solve it. And now I have this like fatalistic attitude about how I can never, ever, ever benefit from the liturgy and the liturgy stinks because I can't do anything because it's long and it's, that's just the way it is. But I don't believe that it's someone else's fault. I believe it's my fault. And because it's my fault, that means that I can fix it as well. Instead of saying the reason is because of, I need to say I will do whatever it takes to find the beauty of the liturgy. Because I know it's there, it's written in all the books, I've heard it in the sermons, it's there. Just because I can't find it, doesn't mean it's not there. Just means that I haven't found it yet. And the attitude that we need to take is an attitude of less excuses, more investment. Tell me one good thing in life that comes free, that comes without any effort. If you want something, like for example, um, I don't know, <clears throat> Let's say you want to be very good at um, a, a piano or a guitar or something like that. I can't just walk into the piano lesson, be like, or the guitar lesson, be like, this is hard. Or the piano, uh, this is difficult. If I want to be good, I got to say, you know what? It's my fault that I'm not good. 
I gotta study, I gotta invest, I gotta practice, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, and if I do, then I can be good. And the one who practices this much will enjoy it like this, the one who practices this much will enjoy it like this. Why the liturgy, we just expect to coast in, you know, and just, and just bring the benefit to me, okay? Someone just pour the presence of God on my face. That's not the way it was. And that wasn't the way it was when Christ was on earth. The example that I always think of, the one person who I believe maximized, maximized the presence of God. There's two people I always think of. There's the thief on the right hand of Christ. Leave him aside. The lady who was bleeding. Remember that story, the lady who was bleeding? How much time, she'd been bleeding for years and years and years and years and years and no doctor and no therapy and no nothing could solve her. And then Christ healed her. How much time did she have with Christ? How much interaction did she have with him? Very, very, very small. But man, oh man, did she maximize that time with him. How? Because she fought through the crowds. And she believed and believed and believed and she went touch and they said, no. She said, okay, no, okay, I'm gonna go this way. And they said, no. Then she snuck this way. And she was screaming and pushing and fighting and the rest of us have been like, okay, just give up, lady. There must have been a hundred bleeding ladies that day who gave up and said, well, you know what? Like, uh, they won't, the apostles won't let me. Or, you know, I tried for an hour. Or I tried for two hours. Or I tried for three hours. Or I tried for four hours. But she kept fighting and fighting and fighting and sneaking and that and that. And then she eventually snuck one little finger one little finger was able to sneak through and touch the bottom of his robe. And she found healing. Why? Because the investment that she put into it. Because she realized if I don't get healed, it's not his fault, it's my fault. So if the problem is with me, then the solution is with me as well. With that said, <clears throat> let me do like the caveat up front. I'm not saying that, that you can control the Spirit of God in your life. And I'm not saying that, yeah, 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 just do what I'm telling you, and then every week it'd be earth-shattering. And I'm not saying it like that. That's the work of God. But what I'm saying is do the work, and you can be prepared for the work of God every week. See the difference? I'm not saying that every week God is going to come and give you this, or He's going to heal you of this. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying come every week prepared for that. And you can prepare yourself every week for God to do something in your life. And then what God does, He does. He may heal, he may, he may discipline, I don't know what he's going to do, but you can be prepared every week for what he's going to do. The reason that we don't find the reward is because often we don't put in the investment up front. I remember back when I was, uh, was probably like uh, 18, 19, 20, something like that. Me and my family, we took a trip to Jerusalem to like the Holy Land and we saw like the sepulcher where Christ was and the place with the cross and we did like all that kind of stuff. I enjoyed the trip, but I'll be honest, I didn't benefit tremendously from it. And the reason why was at the time I wasn't that into the church stuff. Like, you know what I mean? Like I went to Catholic school and I knew all the stories. Yeah, it's kind of cool, but like I was just as happy sitting in the hotel and watching HBO or whatever it was. Like, I mean, yeah, that's cool. But then, like, now I think about it. Man, like, if I could go now. Like, anytime someone tells me they go now, like, I get jealous because I was there and I didn't pay attention to this stuff. Now I would love to go because now I understand and now I'm interested and now I would invest so much more. You know what I mean? Like, I'd be the guy reading this stuff in advance and getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning. To beat the, like, I'd invest so much more. Same trip. This guy benefit this. This guy benefit this. What's the difference? Investment. It's the same with coming to church on Sunday. Think about this. 
I'm not trying to call you out. I'm trying to challenge you in the way that God wants to challenge you. So don't take this in a bad way. How much do you invest coming to church on a Sunday morning? God wants to do this. How much do you invest to be ready for God to do anything? <clears throat> Just show up? Strolling late? Sleepy? Not paying attention? Or are you like the bleeding woman? So you know what? I gotta fight. And I gotta get there. I will say, like there's three R's that I always remember. Okay? And I'll talk about these later. The readings, repentance, rest. These are the three R's that I like to invest in to be prepared for Sunday. Readings, read the readings in advance. Repent, repent in advance. And get rest. How much effort are you, whether in these three ways or any way, like how much effort are you putting into Sundays? I'll break it down in terms of like what ways that you can invest. But I just want to ask the general question. And I don't want to get into the specifics. I want to ask you, when was the last time you said, hey, Sunday's coming. I need to get ready for Sunday. Don't be surprised that if you invest zero, you will get zero. That's the way it is with all worship. <clears throat> the key to successful, successful communal worship and I'm using the word successful. I know that sounds weird, but I believe there's successful and non-successful. To being successful at communal worship is active participation. Obviously, participation means being there and doing something. But you can participate actively and non-actively. I want to be active participation. Again, a couple more examples. Someone who hears... Here's a mountain, okay? And there's gold inside the mountain. Two people. One just shows up, shovel in hand. All right, let's go get the gold. Another one has studied, okay, and knows this part and this part and has the machinery and has the bucket and all this kind of stuff. Which of the two is going to be more likely to be the same mountain, same gold? Which of the two is more likely to, at the end of the day, say, yes, this mountain is a rich mountain? No doubt. <clears throat> The mountain is not different. The different is the investment that the two people put in. Another example. You go to Wall Street, all right? And you want to, here you go. Here I have $1,000 in my hand. And I show up on Wall Street and be like, okay, I'm going to get rich today. I'm going to, and you just, you know, just walk around and kind of throw some money here and there. Versus the guy sitting on the computer and the study and then this. Like, there's nothing in life where you will find success by just showing up. Why do we expect worship to be any different. I'm asking you to take my word on something and then we'll build off of that. So the take my word is that there's gold in this mountain. Okay? There's gold in this mountain which is the liturgy. There's gold. There's gold. There's life. There's the real presence of God. Now if that's there, now the next step is what are you going to do about it? What are you going to invest? I say three keys to open the door of the liturgy is understand, prepare, practice. All right? Understand, prepare, and practice. Understand is the head knowledge. And this is what I'm going to talk about, okay, today on, on a surface level. Like I'll give like an intro to this about like what is the, like what does it mean when we say sacrament? What, like what is the divine liturgy? What is the Eucharist? So you have to like understand the theoretical. 
Like what is it supposed to be? And you have to kind of draw the picture, okay, what it's supposed to be. And then once you draw what it's supposed to be and you've experienced something much different than it, then you start the work of building up there. So the first step will be like the head knowledge. I'll give an intro today. One of the things that as I mentioned before, is that one of the things that eventually, as the church, as we establish the church and build the church, we want to have classes that people can attend. Actually, we want to all attend these classes to learn more about our faith. And one of the things we want to do is learn more about the sacraments and especially the divine liturgy. More in depth. Today I'm not going in depth. Today I'm just going, like I said, surface. But that's something that hopefully we'll do more. Second is prepare. Those are the three R's that I said. That's the readings. You never, ever, ever show up without doing the readings. You don't show up without doing the readings. You read the readings in advance because the readings are what make every liturgy different. How is this Sunday different than last Sunday? Because the readings were completely different. And the readings are what set the tone. All right? It's like me going into my house. I go into my house every day, but every day me and my wife have a different discussion. So I can't say, okay, well, I, I was there last week. It's the same house. Okay, it's the same house, but the person is saying different words. So it's a different interaction every time that I go into it. It's the same thing when you come here. Yes, it's the same house. Yes, it's the same structure. But every time, Christ is saying different words. And you should be responding with different words. You've got to know the readings in advance. All right? And then when you read them in advance, because here's why in advance. <clears throat> I read the readings, me personally. I'm not saying you've got to do what I do, but this is what I do. I read them first on Saturday morning. So that's like my Saturday morning quiet time is the readings. And then I usually read them again Saturday night. And then I usually read them again on Sunday morning. I get up early and do another quiet time, same readings. You know why? Because sometimes you hear it, and then you go back and you hear it again, and you read it a third time, and ah, oh, it's that like, but it doesn't happen from the first time. Like I said, you read it, you go watch Spider-Man, you come back, and it all connected. <clears throat> read the readings in advance. Second thing is repent, is you have to come repentant. If you come not repenting, I'm not saying you have to confess every single Saturday before you come, but if you don't come with a repentant heart, you will gain nothing. Zero. Zilch. Zero. Any miracle that Jesus did in the Bible, the predecessor or the prerequisite for every miracle was repentance. A repentant heart. A contrite heart. That's, that, like that. You don't have that. Don't show up. You're just going through the motions. You must. And I'm not saying like hours and tears. I'm not saying it like that. But I'm saying you before God, you bow your heart, bow your heart bow your heart and you say God I want to live for you I'm sorry forgive me and if I need to go to my wife and apologize I go to my wife and apologize if I need to go to this guy and give him a, a high five or a hug or whatever I need to do that I have to repent repentance starting and then third one which I believe as I see them yawnings around is the rest okay you stay out till 2 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday you are not going to be in good shape on Sunday it's just if Sunday morning is so important to me then I would start to prepare from the night before. With that said, I'm not saying that everyone should go to sleep at 8 o'clock like I go to sleep at 8. But what I'm saying is, if Sunday is so important and it's an important day, maybe it would reflect into the amount of rest I get beforehand. That's the prepare. And then the third part is the practice. And practice just means do it. All right? It means if the church says sing a hymn, sing the hymn. Belt it out. If the church says kneel, kneel. If the church says say this creed, say this creed. Like participate, get into it. All right, do something. You know, because the more that you do, the more that you'll start to feel. <clears throat> if you have understanding, you have preparation, you have practice, you will go from 
taking communion to having communion. That's where I want to go from. Taking communion to having communion with God. Okay? Okay, so now let's go through the understand component. And at a high level, let's understand when I say liturgy, when I say sacrament, let's try to understand at a theoretical level. What is a sacrament? The example that I always give of a sacrament is Niagara Falls. When you look at this waterfall right here, you can see two different things. Some people can look at this and say, it's just a bunch of water. It's just a bunch of water. But someone who's got a trained eye, who's like a, um, a physicist or a, a science guy, can look at this and see what? No, I see power. And I see that this has enough power that it could light up a city. And this produces enough energy that it could, you know, run a, a thing, okay, a, a turbine, okay, or a, a power plant or whatever. And the same people can look at this and be like, it's just a bunch of water. And some people say, no, 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 no. This thing has the power to do, and then you can list whatever it is that you want. That's the sacraments. The sacraments, you can look at and be like, it's bread and wine. No, it's power. It's just water in a tub with some oil. No, 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 no. There's power inside it to the trained eye. Because the sacraments, I'll give you two definitions for the sacraments. A, the sacraments are our way of harnessing God's power in the world and in our lives. <clears throat> the sacraments are the harnessing of that, that raw power of the Niagara Falls, harnessing it so that it can light a light bulb or turn on a TV or run a vacuum cleaner. That's what the sacraments are. They give you the power of God the sacrament is like the channel through which the power of God comes and you can start to do stuff. What kind of stuff? Hey, there's all kinds of stuff. If you look in the Gospels, the commands that Christ gives us are not easy. Are they easy? They're not easy. Be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. That ain't easy. Love not just your neighbor as yourself, but love your enemy. That ain't easy. Um, someone slap this cheek, turn this cheek. Go the second mile. Forgive 70 times 7. Those aren't easy commands. Well, if he's going to command such hard things, where, is he get, where are we going to get the power from? Boom, that's the sacraments. He says, I'm going to challenge you to do this, and if I just challenge you to do this and I send you off, then I'm not being a fair, a fair God. I'm going to challenge you to do this, then I'm going to give you the power that you can do it. Where's the power come from? It comes through the sacraments. It's the channel through which God's power comes into our lives. Second definition, this is the more textbook definition, a sacrament is an invisible grace bestowed through a visible means. A sacrament is something that you can't see happening through something that you can see. I guess the beauty of the Orthodox Church is that it always gives us visual aids. It doesn't just uh, to the imagination. It gives us visual aids because it knows we're, like we're, God likes to be visual. That's why, that's why God became incarnate. He likes like tangible things. So it says, you know what? I'm going to forgive all your sins. Okay, but that's kind of like, okay, you know what? I'm going to have a priest stick his hand on top of your head and, and tell you this. There's a visual. I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to kill your old nature, okay? And I'm going to give you a new nature. I'm going to give you a new nature. 
Okay, how does that look? Okay, I'll tell you what, let me dunk you underwater and hold you down there three times so that you feel like you're dead and I'll bring you up in a new life. You're gonna look completely different. It gives us invisible things through visible means. That's what the sacraments are. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What's that life and godliness? That's the life that God wants us to lead to live, and he gives us what we need to live that life through the sacraments. How many sacraments are there? Not seven. How many sacraments are there? The concept of number of sacraments, like, okay, so technically the right answer is there's seven sacraments, but that actually, like the orthodox concept of sacraments is not seven sacraments, but rather a sacramental life, where everything we do is sacramental. Like, it doesn't have to be defined as like, okay, these are the seven ways that God's power will come into your life. That's not. That's incorrect. They are seven, okay, set ways, but our life should be sacramental. When I'm giving to the poor, and I'm helping a homeless guy in the street, that's sacramental moment right there. That's a moment where God is present through this invisible, in, invisible God is present through a visible man. Because he even said, whatever you do to the least of my brethren, that you did unto me. When I am comforting someone with the comfort that God comforts me with, that's a sacramental moment. When I am in my room and I am praying and I have communion with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that's a sacramental moment. We don't look at it in terms of like, these are the sacraments. We look at it as we live a sacramental life, a life with God. When we have fellowship one another as the body of Christ, that's sacramental. When we have love, that's sacramental because that's the presence of God in our midst amongst us. So there are like seven like main or like set sacraments, but don't think that these are the only seven times that the power of God comes into our lives. <clears throat> I think about the sacraments. Remember the story in John 9 of the blind guy and Jesus put the mud and the spit on his eye? That mud was sacramental. Okay? Because through that mud, the power of God came into this man's life through that mud and through that spit. What I'm saying is there's mud and there's spit going on all around. And those are that's the sacramental life that we lead together. Okay? Now specifically, the sacrament that, that we're talking about here is the sacrament of the Eucharist. The sacrament of the Eucharist, okay, first of all, some terminology. What is the difference between liturgy and Eucharist? Are the two terms interchangeable? No. What is the difference between liturgy and Eucharist? Who knows? Anyone know? What's liturgy? Okay, liturgy literally means work of the people. So liturgy is nothing. Liturgy just means a group of people doing something together. So liturgy, we actually, in the, in the, in the church, have many liturgies. Many liturgies. And the one that we celebrate on Sunday is the liturgy of the Eucharist. So the Eucharist is the body and blood. Okay, Last Supper. 
But when we get together on Sundays, actually, there are many liturgies that we pray leading up to the Eucharist. Okay, so we have the liturgy of the Eucharist, that's the last one. Before that, we have the liturgy of the Word. Okay, that's where we have the readings. And that is a liturgical, and that's sacramental through the, the, the Word of God, which is read to us. A funeral is a liturgy. We have liturgy of the water. Okay, the, the, the marriage ceremony, that's a liturgy. Liturgy just means a group of people getting together to do something. So the Eucharist, okay, is, is the main, like the center, but we just call it the liturgy, just kind of referring to it, but just so we understand the terminology. Is that clear? Okay, liturgy is just like the vehicle through which the sacraments come through. Like baptism is a liturgy as well. Okay, the work of the people together. <clears throat> the Eucharist is the sacrament of sacraments. That's what we're talking about, the body and blood of Christ, which started back in Matthew 26. Every time we get together on a Sunday morning, we are at Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Every time we gather together around the table of the Eucharist, we are at the Last Supper. Or I should say the Last Supper is here with us. Christ is here, body and blood, right there. John chapter 6, Christ affirms the importance of that sacrament when he says, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. When Jesus said this, this, this statement, many people didn't understand what He was talking about. And a lot of people were like offended by this. Like, what are you talking about? How we eat your flesh and drink your blood. And many, it says many of his disciples left him. They stopped following him after that. And Jesus let them go. Why is it so important, this sacrament, about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? The Eucharist is the culmination of everything we do in Christianity. Now here's the question of why. Why is it so important? This verse answers the question for us. Colossians chapter 1 verse 26 and 27. Answering the question, why the Eucharist is the peak and is the center and is, like I said in the beginning, the Alpha and the Omega is the most important thing in the whole wide world. The mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is... Pause one second. Don't look at the rest of your hand up. Look at me. St. Paul in this passage is saying, guys, I'm going to tell you guys a secret. And a secret that from the beginning, not a secret, as much as a mystery. Something which is really, really important. And from the very, very beginning of time, God wanted to tell this to people. People didn't get this. But guys, I figured this out. I figured out the reason that everything that we have is based on this one thing. I figured out the mystery among the Gentiles, which is, what's the mystery? The mystery is Christ in you. The hope of glory. From the very beginning of time, God's goal was to dwell inside man. In the beginning, God's goal was not just to live with man, but to live in man. That's a weird concept. <clears throat> We're a mature audience here. 
So I can use this example. When a boy and a girl like each other, okay, they want to have dinner together. That's very good. But that's not the goal is to have dinner. They want to, you know, go to the park together. Okay, that's not the goal to have go to the park together. The goal isn't to even live in the same house. The goal is unity. The goal is that two would become one flesh. That's the pinnacle. God has that same picture with us. God's goal isn't just for us to be baptized and be part of his family. God's goal isn't for us to serve and just be like his workers. God's goal isn't for us to just have a head knowledge of him. God's goal for us is that as two become one in marriage, that we would become one with him, united with him. And from the very beginning of time, that was God's goal, but man couldn't get it. Couldn't get it. How can we be one with God? So God said, okay, you know what? I'll start you off easy. Y'all go down there. I'll stay up here on the mountain. Okay, and every now and then you'll come up and see me. So people saw me, oh, God is great. And he said, okay, you know what? I want to be closer to the people. So how about I come down the mountain and I come to you as a human being? That is going to be scary. Okay, I'll tell you what. I'll make it easy. I'll come as a baby. You can't be scared of a baby. I'll make it easy for you. Okay, so now we can kind of interact. Okay, this is great. And then now let's spend a lot of time together and I'll give you teachings and I'll do miracles for you. Okay, this is great, but that's not the pinnacle. Died on the cross, rose from the dead. All is good, not all is good. All is not complete until when? Until next Sunday we celebrate Pentecost, which is what? Christ in me. That's what it is. It's when the Holy Spirit came and now God lives in me. Doesn't he? <clears throat> Every time we celebrate the Eucharist, the Eucharist is our intimacy with God. It's our oneness with God. When He's in us and we're inside Him. Again, I know it's kind of confusing, but listen to what Jesus says right here in John 17. This is His prayer. He says that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. He's stressing on this one, this unity. I in them, and you in me. That they may be made perfect in one. You see? I in them. That's the perfect. How will they be perfect? Is I in them, and you in me. So we're all inside each other. How does that happen? That happens in the Eucharist. That's why the Eucharist is the center. That's why the Eucharist is no joke. That's why the Eucharist is the most important day of the week. That's why the Eucharist, if we don't have it, we're a country club. If we don't have this table, and all we do, obviously I'm not saying this table, but what was in front of, was here before. Okay, if we don't have this table that's here, then we're nothing. Then we're just a group of people who are nice to each other and drink coffee together. But we're nothing. But when we have this, him and us and us and him, okay, What's the criteria for this great gift of communion with God? What's the criteria? Anytime you ask this to a person, the longer you have been a member of the Coptic Orthodox Church, the longer list of criteria that you can list. Okay, the longer that you're in it, the more you've heard new rules, the things that you've got to do or you can't do before communion. Right? 
So if you see someone who's got a list of like, no, 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 you can't do this, you can't do this, and you've got to wear this, and you can't walk this, and this foot first, and this foot second, the longer the list is, that means you are a professional Coptic Orthodox Christian. What's the criteria that... What's the criteria to receive communion? You know the best thing about communion in our church? In communion, the picture of communion is you come, right? That's how you take communion, right? That's how you take communion. You come and yeah. I got. You just open your mouth wide. That's a beautiful picture. Isn't this a beautiful picture? <laughs> Maybe not where you're sitting, but it's a beautiful picture. You know why? Because it says, if you don't have hands, that's okay. If you don't have feet, that's okay. If you can't even move, like if somebody was paralyzed, could they still take communion? Yeah. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to come to you. Saying if the works of your hands are not very good, that's okay. And you messed up a lot, you've gone bad places, that's okay. If you are utterly worthless, you are the most worthless person, there's no benefit to your existence whatsoever. Can you open your mouth? Yeah. Then I can come inside you. That's what Jesus says. <clears throat> All Jesus needs for him to come inside of us is you need to come hungry. All you need to do is warn him. Think to the man who was paralyzed and laid by the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. That man wanted Jesus, but he couldn't get to him. Jesus came to him. Think about how many people needed Christ, like the Samaritan woman, needed him so badly, but they couldn't get to him. So he comes to them. But when he comes to you, all you got to do is want him. That's why so many times he said, what do you want? That's why he many times said, what do you want me to do for you? He would ask them, do you, are, are you hungry for me or you're not hungry for me? You want me or you don't want me? You're good without me or you're not good without me? That's all he needs. You don't need to be a scholar. You don't need to be like doing a whole bunch of stuff. You don't need to be the greatest person in the whole wide world. You just need to come hungry. And if you come hungry to him, I guarantee you, if you come hungry to God and say, God, I'm hungry for you. I'm thirsty for you. He said it himself, not me. John 7, 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Anyone who wants me, has got me. <clears throat> Maybe one of the reasons why we're not getting the maximum benefit out of the divine liturgy and the sacrament of the Eucharist is because we don't come to God hungry. We come to God, okay, the buffet, the plate, how empty is your plate when you bring it to God? If your plate is full, then you get to the end of the buffet and there's something great. You can only put so much into it. That's one of the cool things when the church tells us to fast before, not eat. Okay? That's one of the cool things is that we come literally empty with nothing. We come with this thing empty so that he can fill all of us and that we can be full off of him. That's kind of a nice picture. The same should be true spiritually. That we come hungry for God and say, God, Look, I got a job, and I got a family, and I got a house, but I don't want any of that stuff. I just want you. And all this stuff is meaningless to me except you. I want you. You're the most important thing to me. Come hungry. Come with a plate like this. 
I will say, God will fill your bucket. It just depends how big your bucket is. If you come to the ocean, God is like the ocean, and you come to the ocean with the little communion cup, okay? How much water are you going to get from the ocean? A little communion cup worth, okay? And then someone else comes with a big bucket from the ocean to the ocean. How much water are they going to get a big bucket? You come to church on Sunday, how big is your bucket? How big is your bucket? You came with a little bucket like this. Okay, God, give me this. You know how much God's going to give you? This. And someone else walked out with like this. Why? Because God is infinity. And He will fill whatever bucket you bring to Him. So if the problem is that you're not getting enough water, don't blame the ocean. Blame your bucket. That's why I'm saying it's my fault. Maybe the reason is we don't come repentant. We don't come hungry. We don't come with a spirit of, I want nothing except God. The good news, we can fix that. And it's the perfect time to fix it because next week, like I said, we celebrate Pentecost. And Pentecost is the day the Holy Spirit came and flooded and filled everybody. And we are going to prepare for the Feast of Pentecost with a special night next Saturday night. So every Saturday night, like I told you all many times, we gather together, we have Vespers, 7 o'clock, and then, uh, then we have midnight praises and we take confession. I take confession, not we take confession. <laughs> you give, I take, okay? <clears throat> Next Saturday, we want to do something special. And if everyone comes, that's great. If no one comes, that's fine too. Issue isn't about getting as many people as possible. This is not like an invite your friend kind of a thing night. This is, we want to spend some time in prayer. And we want to, from 7.30 to about 8.30, but you can't really limit the spirit, okay? We want to spend time in prayer. We want to spend time on our knees. Okay, praying for God to really fill this place and really fill our lives and revive our lives. Like we want it to be a real Pentecost. Like every year, <clears throat> like on the Feast of Pentecost, the church has like the liturgy in the morning and then there's something called the kneeling prayers which are said Sunday evening. All right, usually like 4 or 5 p.m. We, we don't have the hotel in the evening so obviously we're not going to do that. But... We'll have the spirit of the kneeling prayers on Saturday night, okay? Where we'll get together, we'll get on our knees, and we'll pray to God to really fill us with the Holy Spirit and to really overwhelm us with the Holy Spirit. No structure, like we want to do it something nice. Well, my point is, if you can come on Saturday, that's great. If you can't come, then you need to find a way to come on Sunday hungry. Come to God empty and pray and ask God to fill and revive and revitalize your life your spiritual life, your marital life, your relationship life, your whatever it is, come hungry, expectant. Come like the bleeding woman. Come just saying, I just got a touch. Come with the investment and just watch what God will do. Last thing I'll leave you all with. John six fifty six. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Jesus promised, promised, that he would abide in us through this sacrament, through this mystery of the Eucharist. If you are not, if you are taking communion, but not experiencing communion, if you are attending liturgy, but not living liturgy, it's your fault. And if I'm, and it's my fault. But the good news is, even though it's my fault and your fault, the responsibility or the, the, the ability to fix it is also with me. And it's your... So let's change it that way. Maybe we'll make it nicer. Not it's your fault, but it's your responsibility. 
Is that nicer than your fault? Okay, a little bit less offensive, okay? It's not your fault, but it's your responsibility to fix. Is that nice? Okay, so let's say it is the deacon's fault, okay? Maybe it really is their fault, or it is the priest's fault, or it is the kid's fault, or it is the hot fault, or the motorcycle people's fault, or whatever people's fault, okay? It is their fault, but it's your responsibility. And I challenge you, if you're gonna be a member of St. Timothy and St. Athanasius Church, we're not just gonna go through the motions. We're not just gonna get together and liturgy is just a burden. We just gotta check it off on the list and get to the end of it so we can eat our coffee or drink our coffee and eat our snacks. It's not gonna be like that. We're gonna gather around this table and it's gonna be life-giving and life-transforming. <clears throat> okay, ladies and gentlemen, challenge is there. Good. Anyone have any questions they wanna ask about the liturgy? Okay? Okay, let's stand up and say a prayer together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you for this great gift that you've given us here in the church, which is your body and your blood. Thank you for the intimacy that you always seek to have with us. I pray, Lord, that we as, as a church would never take it for granted and never take it as a routine and never just go through the motions. That every week, Lord, when we gather together, that it would be like when the apostles gathered in that upper room and every week would be like Pentecost week. And every week we'd feel like, like, like the, the earth is shaking and, and, and the wind is blowing and we feel like your presence is really here. Lord, help us to prepare better for the liturgy so that we can, we can better receive the gifts that you want to give to us. Don't let us be like the hundreds of people who touched you that one day and got nothing, but let us to all be like that bleeding woman who touched you and received your power and received healing and received exactly what she needed that one day from you. We thank you, Lord, for this gift that you've given us. We pray that the words that I just said wouldn't just be words, but they would really be transforming and, and would transform our church and transform our, our, our lives individually as well as communally. We ask this in the name of your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, with the intercessions and the prayers of all your saints, especially St. Timothy and St. Athanasius. Hear us, Lord, as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Through Christ Jesus our Lord, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.